Well, as you know by now, Meredith and I were at a Pastors and Pastors' Wives conference. We were in Minneapolis, St. Paul, Minnesota, and we learned that the Mississippi River goes right between those two cities. Who'd have thought? All the way up there. Can you believe it? And God gave us a, a wonderful trip there. Uh, a number of really wise speakers. That's, that is probably the thing. Uh, it, I'm going to just ask if you could bring it down just a little bit more. Uh, that is probably the thing that I recognized when I was there, just sitting under these men. And they're not just pastors. These are men who have been seasoned in the Lord and, and really ministered to us. As a matter of fact, one of them said, and I, I can't remember which one it was. I think there were one, two, three, uh, four main speakers. And uh, one of them being uh, Jim Anderson, who is like the head overseer of the, uh, the network of churches, a, really a very loose network of churches that just have a passion for Christ, making disciples. Um, and uh, actually, before I mention that, uh, no, okay, I, I will mention, he, this particular uh, speaker, and, I, and again, I can't remember who it was, but he said this, he said, God and Satan have the same goal, and it is to kill us just for different reasons. Let, let that just sink in a little bit. Jesus put it this way. He said, if you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself, take up your, help me out, cross, and follow me. That means we must, as a disciple, we must be willing to follow Jesus even to the point of death. That is the challenge that Jesus gives us. But in the process, he wants to humble us. He wants to teach us what it really means to deny self. Therefore, God's desire is to kill me. The me that wants preeminence above him. The me that wants to promote myself. The me that wants people to serve me. That's the me that God wants to kill. And God wants to do that, in, not just in your pastor, okay. But God wants to do that in all of us. And I just thought, what an interesting reflection on truth. You see, Satan, though, he doesn't want to kill us in that way. He wants to, if anything, exalt ourselves. And by exalting ourselves, uh, we will die. We will, be per we will uh, go through incredible trials. Uh, one particular speaker was quoting from the Phillips translation that says, um, humble yourselves and God will promote you. But promote yourselves and God will humiliate you. And trust me that Satan's goal is, to, is not just to humble us but to humiliate us and to allow the people of God to be dishonored. That's what pride does. Is that not right? So uh, I, I want to share with you before I get into the sermon tonight. Uh, uh, one particular gentleman who was there, he was not a, a main speaker... But he and his wife, and I'm going to guess they're probably 65 years of age, somewhere around there, though they looked younger than myself. Um, but they are from Vietnam. He's been ministering in the Assemblies of God, and he has, God has used him in powerful ways there. He was raised in a Buddhist family. He, in the process... Uh, in, in, as he was growing up, he had been a, a, a set apart as a Buddhist monk, but God visited him and, and brought him to a place in which as God revealed, him, re revealed Jesus to him, 
He gave his heart to Christ. His Buddhist family disowned him and actually placed a curse upon him and said, you will never have a son. His first four children were daughters. Child number five, a son. When he had a son and he praised the one true God and Jesus Christ, his entire family came to Christ. His extended family came to Christ, even those that had put this curse upon him. And God demonstrated that he is so much more powerful than some puny Buddha idol that has no power whatsoever. And, and God showed himself to truly be who he is, the one true God, creator of all, and there is no other God. And then God called him into ministry, and in his... Um, I'm trying to remember, 30 plus years of ministry, I'm trying to remember, he has been in prison 10 of those years. In the process, though, the network of churches that he started grew, the, the members grew to 10,000, underground church. And he eventually got kicked out of Vietnam, could not come back. The last time he was imprisoned, he was put on their death row, Vietnam's, the Vietnamese understanding of death row. Uh, an American pastor found out about this. Um, his name actually is Ron Johnson, who is just around the corner at one church. And he was in Virginia Beach at the time and had some influence, knew people who knew people, you know what I mean? And he was able to apply pressure on the Vietnamese government, and they released him. Well, he got kicked out of Vietnam, and now he's been ministering in Cambodia and just continuing, therefore, also to minister, though not in Vietnam, he's ministering to the Vietnamese and Laos and, and uh, Malaysia and such. And what an what a awesome testimony he had. And, and he shared it, not from the pulpit, but he shared it from, uh, he has a book, but he shared it with Meredith and I personally and many others. But uh, isn't it awesome to realize that, you know, we can sometimes become so Americanized, Westernized, and, and this is just kind of all that we see. God is working so powerfully in, in third world countries and other lands. Our prayer is, God, bring it here. Bring it home. Bring it to America. Bring it to the West. And, and whatever is in our hearts and in the church that needs, you need to get rid of, then God, please get rid of it. So that you would be exalted and you would cause a, a, a spirit-led movement throughout this land. Amen, church? Amen. Well, a, a couple was going through a financial upswing, if you will, and they were able to hire a maid. Okay, and they asked the maid to come in on Fridays, and so she was going to go there this Friday, and the husband just happened to rush home, because he had left his lunch at home, rushed home to grab his lunch, and discovered there was his wife on her knees scrubbing the floor, pails of buckets, spray cleaners, vacuum out, you name it. And he said, hon, what are you doing? The, the maid is coming tomorrow, and she says, I realize that. But I couldn't stand for her to see our house such a mess. You know, I, I kind of, that's kind of like, hey, you know, wash the dishes before you put them in the dishwasher. You know what I mean? Um, here, here's the truth. Humility and humiliation are only a few strokes of the pen different. I, I believe that many times God does use humiliation to humble us. Um, but we need deeper humility in our hearts. I, I can remember, and I've shared this story with you, 
before, but I can remember when I was a, uh, a teen pastor and I had the privilege to, to see a, uh, a minister who was a teen leader and a very well-known teen leader, written some books on ministering to teens, and, but he, he was truly gifted in comedy. And as he ran up to the stage, he proceeded to trip on the top step, fall, and I'm sure that he hit the ground purposely very hard. And everyone's just, oh, is he okay? And he gets up, he brushes himself off, he takes his watch off, he listens to it, licks it, and he says, it's amazing, takes a lick and keeps on ticking. I just, everybody broke up. I thought, man, that's hilarious. So I tried that. Humiliation is spelled H-U-M-I. Nobody in the teen group laughed. I, I, I just came to the realization, okay, God, that's just not what you've called me to. Uh, but isn't it easy for us to aspire to be like others because they do so well, because, you know, maybe they're, they're, they're great in the eyes of the public, maybe awesome singer or guitar player, we want to be just like them. Um, and, and God needs to speak to us as he spoke to me at that very moment when all I heard was the crickets. God spoke so clearly to me, Mike, I created you a particular way. This is who I need you to be. Not like this guy here. I need you to be how I made you. You know, it's, it's kind of like the guy who was sent to prison and while he's there, he's during the evening hours after dinner, he hears someone call out, free, and everybody starts laughing. And then he hears the number 24, and everybody just starts laughing. And he says, well, I don't get it. What's going on? People just yell out numbers, and they start laughing. He says, well, okay, here, here, here's, here's the back, backdrop to this. We had a joke book, okay, and all the jokes were numbered. So instead of us just reading off the entire joke, it just takes too long. We just read out the numbers and everybody remembers and they laugh. And he says, cool, I want to try this. And he gets the book, he looks at it, he says, number 13. Yes. Number 47. Dead silence. He says, I don't get it. I'm doing it just like them and I'm calling out the numbers and they, nobody's laughing. And the guy looks at me and he says, well, buddy, some people can tell them and some can't. I couldn't. So I learned my lesson. I got it. Oh, my. Humility, church, humility is essential to God's grace being poured out upon his people. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. As we're going through this series on God's grace and how God truly desires to demonstrate his grace in our lives every day. I want to come now to this understanding of spiritual gifts. For us to serve in the body of Christ, I want, us to, talk, I want to talk about spiritual gifts. But I want us to, to look at Romans chapter 12. Turn there with me if you would. I'm going to read several verses, actually the first eight verses, but I'm only going to be focusing on the first three today. Romans chapter 12, we do find the word gifts or spiritual gifts in this passage, but we're also going to find this concept of humility 
And we're going to see the significant link between these two tonight. Verse 1, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we who are many are one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift of prophecy, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, some of your translations say administration, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. That word that I mentioned to you, gifts, we see it in verse 6. Do you see it there? Now, some of you may actually have in your translation spiritual gifts. I want you to write this word down. Because it's significant. It is the Greek word charisma. Or yes, charis, charismata, charismata, which is plural. But charisma is the word that you may be familiar with. There is a magazine that's out that's called by that name. Charisma, except you pronounce it differently. We call it charisma. Charisma magazine. Now that's different than when someone has charisma. You know what I mean? Someone who has charisma... People, he just walks into a room and people like him. He just begins to talk and people like him. And one of the reasons why people like such a person who has charisma is because he's able to focus on people rather than himself. And everybody, guess what? Unfortunately, they like to focus on themselves. But that's not what we're talking about tonight. That, that type of charisma, uh, that, that's probably definition number one. But definition number two, this charisma I want to talk about tonight is this Greek word, it's spiritual gifts. Now, my version just says gifts, but please understand it's spiritual gifts. And these spiritual gifts, charisma, is rooted in the word charis or charis. That's the word that we find there in verse 3. For by the grace given to me. We also find it in verse 6. It says, for we have different charismata. Spiritual gifts, according to the charis or charis given to us. So here's what I want you to do with this word charisma. I want you to write this as a definition. Gracelets. Gracelets. Just like bracelets, these are gracelets. These are things that God gives to his church that adorns them, but truly it adorns him. Because it's supposed to bring glory and honor to him. But these are gracelets. These, are, these spiritual gifts are rooted in God's grace. And because of this, we need to, we need to 
realize that if we're going to go, if we're going to grow in spiritual gifts or gracelets, then we need to have God's grace poured out upon us. Now, that is the very origin of gracelets or spiritual gifts, God's grace. But what if we want to grow in spiritual gifts? Would it not seem reasonable that we want to see God's grace poured out upon us even more? How, how do we do this? How do we, but th- th- let, me, let me back up here. I'm going to suggest that there are three areas that if we grow in them, God will pour out his grace even more. But understand this, this is the caution. You cannot earn God's grace. This is not a formula that I'm going to give you tonight. But if we grow in these areas, these three areas that I'm going to spend three weeks on, if we grow in these areas, God will pour out his grace even more. And in pouring out his grace even more, we will grow in our spiritual gifts. The capacity, if you will, for his spiritual gifts. Next week, I'll actually talk about the... uh, those spiritual gifts a little bit more in depth and and just kind of unwrap this concept of spiritual gifts more because they have so much to do with the anointing of God, but we need to understand that. All right. Tonight, though, I want us to focus on humility. Next week, faith, and the week after that, love. Humility, faith, and love. Those are the three that Scripture ties frequently to spiritual gifts, and he does it here in Romans 12. As we are looking at the first 11 chapters of Romans, what we see unfold for us is this marvelous plan of God's salvation. It goes all the way back to the root of God's need to save us, and that is our sin. As a matter of fact, it's not just sin. It's not just, you know, an occasional, okay, God, I'm not going to do what you want me to do. It is all out, full-blown rebellion. That is what sin is. And as a result, Romans 1 tells us that God's wrath is revealed from heaven upon all of men's sins. Now they suppress the truth of God that reveals this. And my purpose is not to get into Romans 1, but to understand all the way in Romans 1, God lays this foundation of sin. Chapter 2, chapter 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God has provided a remedy for this sin that has so separated us from God, and that is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And he emphasizes this in chapter 5. And as we move on, we begin to understand more and more what this God's justification is. And it's, it's both a forgiveness of sins, and it is now an imp- it is also an imputation of Christ's righteousness, a righteousness revealed from heaven by God. And that has been imparted to us because we have no righteousness of our own at salvation. We're totally lost, totally. All our righteousness are as sinful rags, Isaiah 64, 6 says. So he imparts the righteousness of his son and we are now found in Christ. And then he begins to unravel many other mysteries, the foreknowledge and, and, and predestination of God and the call of God on us that all things work together for our good, for those who are called according to God, who love him. And then he comes. And so what he does in these 11 chapters is he unveils this awesome, marvelous mercy of God 
And the question then is, okay, and we have now received all of this mercy from God. How do we respond? How do we respond? Do we just say, hey, God, thanks a lot and go about our own business for the rest of our lives? Do what we want to do. Thank you, Lord, that you saved me from my sins. I get to go to heaven. Woohoo! Now, see ya. I'm going to live for myself. And Paul says, absolutely not. Salvation isn't just our ticket to heaven. Salvation is a revamped life. It is a revamped mind. And he puts it this way. He says, therefore, in view of God's mercies that I just spoke to you about for 11 chapters, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. A living sacrifice. What word, I just want to ask you, maybe write this down. What word comes to your mind when I say living sacrifices? And you can't say sacrifices, and you can't say living, okay? So what word comes to your mind when I say living sacrifices? Many people will throw out the word servant. Servant. That is the word that we actually find at the end of this verse. He says, offer yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. That word worship is different than the type of worship that we just did as far as lifting our hands, shouting to the Lord, singing his praises, adoration, that type of worship that you see unfold in Revelation 4 and 5. This worship is better translated serve or servant. It is, in the King James, it's called, um, it's called your reasonable service. As living sacrifices, I am, as a living sacrifice, now I am bent on serving God. That is the essence of spiritual gifts. So he's already setting us up to talk about the spiritual gifts by talking about me now being a living sacrifice. But for me to be pro a proper, holy, and pleasing living sacrifice, he now moves on to verse 2. You, gotta you cannot conform to this world, but your mind has to be transformed. And that's what I want to get at tonight. In this world... We have people who are constantly seeking to be promoted. Now, I'm not opposed to promotion. You work hard, and if you work hard enough and smart enough and you're faithful enough and whatever else your business is looking for, you can get a promotion. But I'm talking about promoting ourselves. LeBron James says he's the greatest basketball player in the world. And I thought about that. I said, wow. You know what, that might be true. It really might. I mean, look how he played in this past NBA Finals. He was phenomenal. I'm sure he got the MVP, didn't he? I, I didn't see that. But did he? Yes, he did. MVP. I mean, no, there, there's little doubt that he probably is the most valuable player in the world, not just in that series, the best basketball player. But then... As a Christian, if you were the best, Alex, if you were the best basketball player in the world, maybe one day you will be, would you be able to say in front of a viewing audience, I am the best basketball player in the world? Now, LeBron James says that he believes that he needs to say this because if he doesn't, then he's going to think he's not the best and he's not going to try as hard. I disagree with that. Our heart constantly wants to promote us, not just 
King James, as they call him. But <clears throat> we, we want to constantly strive. We want to promote self. That's the way the world thinks. That is, if we think that way, that is being conformed to the pattern of this world. I'm the best. I'm the great. That's one of the ways that we think. And Paul says, you know what, guys? I'm going to talk. I'm, I'm about to segue into spiritual gifts here. And you need to know something. You have got to root this pride out of your hearts. And he does it. He says it this way. He says, do not think of, this is verse 3, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. But rather, think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. That word sober judgment is really one Greek word, and it means soberly. Think soberly. When you're drunk, you don't think soberly, obviously. Your inhibitions are lowered, and you just say stupid things. And you do stupid things. With Thinking soberly, he's saying, just take a step back. Let's be a little bit realistic here. Let's, let's look at your spiritual gifting and let's assess rightly. Now, that doesn't mean that we put ourselves down. To be humble means that I got to put myself down all the time. You know what? We call that false humility. Can I encourage you? Don't go around and just put yourself down. This is a work of the Holy Spirit in you. Accept that. On the other hand, don't go around and say you're the greatest. Even though you may be. I'm going to tell you that really will not make you the greatest. It won't. So we are called to, be, to have our minds transformed and to think with sober judgment. Step back and let's assess this rightly. I'm going to say this, that if we get this, which, by the way, this is humility. This is what I'm talking about here. Sober assessment. Not too low and not too high. This humility will set us up for God to, to pour out more and more of his grace on our lives. So how... How would we be able to grow in humility? Humility is a mindset. Humility is a framework through which you view other people. Humility says, let's look at this. Verse 4. It says, excuse me, verse 5. So in Christ, we who are many are one body and each member belongs to all the others. We belong to one another. If we if my wife and I, we belong to one another, differently of course than you and I belong to one another. In this union, our goal is to outserve the other. I want you to think of it. In your marriage, your goal is to outserve one another. It is not to expect your spouse to serve you more. 
It is all about me serving my wife and from her perspective, her serving her husband. I want you to think if we as a group had that mentality that my goal is to serve you. See, here's what pride says. Pride says, you need me. You have the need. You need me. Humility says, I need you. Or, I need to serve you. Does that make sense to you? That seems a little odd to put it that way, doesn't it? The person has a need, but there is a need in me, and that is I need to serve. Why? Because I am a living sacrifice. And as a living sacrifice, I have a need now that God has just stirred up in me like a fire. And I have a need now. I need to serve, and I see a need and it's not, hey, you need me. It's no, I need, I have this compulsion and I'm compelled by the love of Christ, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, to, to serve you. Humility says, you need me. Humility says, no, 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 no. I need you. I need you. I need you. I need to be able to serve you. Now, can you imagine a body in which everyone viewed one another this way. We need one another. Each member belongs to all the others, it says. Humility, number one, I'm going to give you five things here over the next half hour. Humility is essential to the pouring out of God's grace. First Corinthians, excuse me, First Peter 5, 5. We need, to, we need to humble ourselves under the mighty, that's verse 6. Humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Here's something about humility, and I want you to think about this. Point number one is we need to humble ourselves to receive God's grace. We need to humble ourselves to receive God's grace. I want you to think about this. As you go through scripture, do you ever hear someone pray, God, please humble us? Or God, please humble me. But it is rather humble yourselves. If we refuse to humble ourselves, guess what, church? God will do the humbling for us. Trust me, you want to humble yourself and not subject yourself to God's intentions to humble you because that will mean he will need to demonstrate dire need in you so that you will look to others or he will humiliate you. Now, that is not, by the way, a bad thing. How many of you have ever been humiliated before? Okay. The rest of you didn't raise your hands. You're lying. Thank you. Okay. But the, really, the reality is we have all been humiliated. We hate it. Now, some of this humiliation was absolutely unnecessary. Some of this humiliation can actually work against us. But when God humbles us and he allows us to go through humiliating circumstances like me telling that joke and all I heard was crickets, that was humiliating. But guess what happened in my heart? 
as I wrestled with God the next day through this humiliation, God was able now to teach me something so that I had a wiser perspective, a more sober judgment of myself. And I was able to say, you know what, God? I don't have to be like this person. That was, that God allowed me to be humiliated to actually bring greater freedom to me. I want you to think about this. When God humiliates you or through circumstances you are humiliated, I want you to see this as now an opportunity for you to be humbled and gain greater freedom, to be able to move more in the gifts he's actually given you, not the ones that you think you have and don't, or abilities you think you have and don't, but in those that God has truly given you. So if we humble ourselves, God will pour out his grace upon us. The second thing, let me gather my notes here. The second thing is that God desires that we serve, but we do so with the right motives. Now, we saw that in, in Romans 12, 3. We serve with the right motives. It is not for others to serve me or for me to think that they need me. But it is for me to realize I have a need as a living sacrifice to serve. I think if we view it this way, we will see serving more as an opportunity rather than an obligation. How many of you like the word opportunity more than the word obligation? All right, I know I do. It sounds funner, doesn't it? This is an opportunity for you. And really, it, it, it can be an obligation, but opportunity just sounds so much cooler. But God gives us serving opportunities. Now, I want to be able to seize those opportunities. I don't want to complain with God. I don't want to tell him how inconvenient serving is, though it may be. This is an opportunity more than it's an obligation. Serving is the focus of all of the spiritual gifts that God gives. We, we read num a number of them here. Prophecy. Again, prophecy right there in, in was that verse 6? Prophecy, yes. In verse 6, prophecy is not an opportunity for a platform for us. It's an opportunity to <clears throat> speak to people and see them built up because that is a need that we have. Prophecy sometimes brings correction. Serving. That's an opportunity. Teaching is an opportunity. Teaching is not an opportunity or it's not an opportunity for me to tell you or express to you just how much I know. You probably have seen teachers operate in that, which they teach and they just love to tell people how much they know. And much of what they share is irrelevant, but a teacher who really sees that what they're teaching meets a need then they will be able to teach in a very different way. They're going to be relevant. They're not going to just pull out all of these scripture verses they have memorized or facts that they know or stuff from books that they've recently read. They're going to share with you what's relevant. 
Number three, and I've already touched on this, it helps us properly evaluate ourselves. I want to go a little bit deeper in that. To do that, let's look at Matthew 18. So keep your finger in that passage of the Bible of Romans 12, but go to Matthew 18. Matthew 18. And in Matthew 18, verse 1, he says that that, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Of heaven. When we properly evaluate ourselves with sober judgment, it should strike a chord of humility. So we humble ourselves and we're able to grow. Number four, I want us, <clears throat> we need to realize that the essence here that we see of humility is that it keeps us from comparing ourselves with others. Paul did not say to evaluate the brothers and sisters around you. That's what pride does. Pride wants me to compare myself with others. How do I stand up with them? Notice that he says here, he talks about this concept of the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is basically the kingdom of God. Same thing. Synonyms. The kingdom of heaven is that rule and reign of God that we are subjects of. We are subjects of his kingdom. But who is the greatest? How do you know who is the greatest? How do you know that LeBron James is the greatest basketball player? Yeah, yes, thank you, LeBron. Yeah, he tells us. But uh, so how do, you, how, do you back, how do you back that up? How do you personally come to that conclusion? You compare how he plays with other people. If he's playing against someone who is supposed to be the greatest and he beats them, you begin to wonder just now who is the greatest. If LeBron beats him, maybe LeBron is the greatest. But this concept of the greatest, and he doesn't say great, but he says greatest, this concept of greatest is inherently one of comparison. But Jesus throws us a curve here. The greatest is not the one who compares himself with others. What? I mean, that's how we find out who's the greatest, isn't it? He says, no, 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 no. There is this group of people who are the greatest, and they are the humble. Now, here's the problem. Never consider yourself to be the humblest. Just don't go there. If you consider yourself to be the humblest, guess what? You're not. It is inherent in this concept of greatest that it, it strikes this chord of selfish ambition and striving and comparing and jostling in the kingdom. And I want to tell you what, man, it is so prevalent in pastors in America 
today. And it's sad. And one of the things that they address at this conference is that we have to be so careful because pastors can get caught up in this concept of selfish ambition and striving and without realizing it, trying to be the greatest. So how many people are you running in your church? What, what, what are you growing? Cattle or something? No, what do you mean running? And you, you run cattle. You don't run people. Yeah, how many people do you have in your church? No, I did not hear that question the entire time we were away. Praise God. But that's, that, that is a question because when, in essence, when one pastor asks that of another, he is wanting to do what? Compare himself. Oh, you have two kids? That's great. Uh, move on. Let me talk to somebody else who has fewer than me. We can compare ourselves. We want to be the greatest. We want to build churches so that we become more recognized. And when people come and fill their churches, that makes them feel better about themselves. People want to plant churches and do it their way. Why? Because they want to grow this big church to affirm themselves. And that root of pride, this root of insecurity is what it really is, is in the heart of many pastors. And God is wanting to root this out. That's one of the things that they talk about this weekend. What does it mean to be a pastor who's secure, who's not insecure? Insecurity show themselves up in a number of ways, not the least of which is comparing with others in the ministry. Don't. Do that. Now, guess what? You're in the ministry. You are. I just told you you are. Because the ministry is all about serving. You're in the serving business. And we all are. Our goal is to serve. Our goal is to minister in varieties of ways. According to the spiritual gift that God in his grace has given us. We will cut that short. If in our pride we are jostling for position in the kingdom of God. At the conference, I'm going to do my best to try and remember how this came out. But one guy was preaching on this very topic. He says, it's amazing how pastors, while they're preaching, they will think, hmm, I would have said it differently. Um, I, I, I would have told a joke then. And he said, you know, it, it's amazing how we will evaluate. As a matter of fact, you're probably, some of you are probably already evaluating me. And one of the guys, he, he raised his hand, you know what, uh, I, I am doing that, but you're doing a great job. And, and there's this tendency to want to evaluate and how would I do it when someone's singing and you're a singer? Is there a tendency to evaluate them and are they better than me? Are they not better than me? Let's, how do you know? Well, let me listen to the applause. And we can go around, because this is what humil this is what pride will do, comparing ourselves with others. We will go around and we look for affirmation. Affirm me. Now that, don't get me wrong here. Aff affirmation is great. That is giving it, not seeking it. Don't seek affirmation. But by all means, church, give affirmation. The problem is when we're seeking affirmation, we become addicts. It's because our, yeah, let me word it this way, our love bucket, our, our contentment with who we are that needs to be filled up with God's love. It needs to be filled up, but many of our buckets have holes in them. And so we're constantly needing other people's affirmation. And, and we're, we're constantly, so how did I do? 
Now, I'm not saying that that's a necessarily a bad thing because many times they're really looking for genuine insight to, to get better. But many times what they're really wanting is you did a great job. Now, the next time someone asks you, so how did I do? Don't be hard on them, okay? Don't assume that they're asking with the wrong motive. But we can, in our jostling for position, and am I good enough, am I good? We, we compare ourselves, and there's only two directions to go, because rarely will you be satisfied with, they're just like me, they're just as good as me, or they're just as bad as me, all right? We want to be either be better, or many times when we compare ourselves, whoa, they are so much better than me, I could never be like that. And it's a real bummer. It's a downer. It's, it, it makes us feel like failures. You really, it makes us feel inadequate. I mean, so stop it, right? When we compare ourselves, you're either going to find out that you're inadequate or you're going to find out, yeah, I, I think I am better than that. Now, let me confirm that. And we go around and look for more affirmation. I mean, come on, this is a cycle. And it's only going to take us further away from what's truly going to allow God to pour out his grace. And that's humility. Humility. How about comparing other spiritual gifts? Intercessory prayer. Some of you are gifted and called to intercessory prayer. It's a burden that God lays on your heart unusually. But what you don't want to do is listen to how other people pray and compare yourself. Don't do that. How about generosity? I mean, wow, how do you weigh generosity? Wow, man, look how much they gave. I need to give more. Now, as a pastor, I think that's great, okay? You give more. Okay, no, I don't either. But we can compare ourselves with each other. You're either going to find that you're inadequate or you're going to find that you're better and need more affirmation. That's not where we want to go. Who is the greatest? You want to be the greatest? Humility. Humble yourself. Deny yourself that opportunity to go around looking for affirmation and have people affirm you. Deny yourself that comparison. Don't go there. It can actually keep you from praising others. Or it could actually cause you when that person that you don't think is as gifted as you, it can keep you from following them. Um, let me just share a very relevant recent situation. Uh, several men have gotten together Saturday mornings, and we are building the sound booth and the stage. And a number of them that have, have put in quite a bit of Sam and Cole and Donald, um, very, Josh has, but these three men, no, nothing against you, Josh. Great job. Super. But these three older men are far more skilled than I am when it comes to carpentry and building things. They can build around me. They can 
they're, they're far better than me. <laughs> As Cole and I got together, and I said, Cole, can you take this? And, and because you're, you're the man in this, okay? You're the point man. As we talked about it, we realized there was so much that needed to go into the planning and counting the pieces and so on. And it, it just fell, in, it fell to me because it, it actually took me 10 hours or more to plan all of this. And I am not, I'm not even half the carpenter that Cole or Donald or Sam is. It's just that it fell to me. And so I was the one who was in contact with the contractor. I was the one in contact with the architect who planned the stage out. God bless you, architect. Wow, did he make it hard for us. But so here we are, and, and it requires so much because you have 2D pictures, and now you have to think 3D. And it, it literally took me several hours just to count how much lumber we had that we needed. So here we are, we're gathered the first Saturday morning. And I say, okay, guys, Cole is going to try and lead this, but the truth is I'm the one who's had to be in contact with the architect and ask all of the hundred questions. And so he's going to show you how, he's going to show you how, to, how it all goes together, but I've got to lay out the plans for you. And so they had to listen to this guy who is half the carpenter that they are explain how they are to build the sound booth and the stage. And so, but here's, here's where I'm going with this. Each of them had humility. And they didn't just listen to me because I'm the pastor, but they listened <laughs> to me because I said, guys, I hear exactly what you're saying. But the architect said... And if we don't do it this way, it doesn't pass inspection. And they came up with several ways to build the stage that was much better. And they were absolutely right. But I said, guys, it's just not going to pass inspection. So we've got to do it this way. And it w this was the third Saturday, full Saturday, that we have worked on it. And we are still not done. Uh, both the stage and the sound booth. And w when we're done, it will probably hold about three or four tanks apiece. Um, but it's got to be built this way. But in their humility, they listened to, to me as I kind of gave instructions about how this is to be done, the blueprint. And you, you cut this from the 12-footers, and you cut this from the 10-footers, and you cut this from the 8-footers, and that's how we're going to have to build this. And you know, I, I found myself in need regularly. Okay, Cole, I've never built a wall before, and the sound booth has to have a wall. I'm working on it right now. Uh, how do I do this, and how do I do this, and Sam, how, what would you recommend, and, and they showed me how to do it. it, it, it I, I probably was the one who slowed everything down because they all had to help me, but they were humble, and they were willing to listen. Some of you have evangelized quite a bit in your life, but the person who is overseeing our evangelism team is Terry Gibbs. Every single one of you, especially us older people, have listened to her as she has given some great advice as we have gone out and as we have prayed for people and here's what we have found. We have come back and we have heard stories, awesome stories. We have prayed for people. We've kept track of names, praying for them during the week and even though we have not seen tons of salvations, we are seeing people's lives impacted by the love of Christ and as God opens the door, the truth of the gospel 
And I'll be honest with you, if I were leading the evangelism team, I wouldn't have done it the way Sarah Joy did it. But as I saw how she was doing it and the passion that she had, I realized this is awesome. And so I give you kudos, Sarah Joy, for how well you have led these teams, all right? And but I, I've evangelized many more times than Sarah Joy has. But I was going to follow her. She gave the ideas. She gave the instructions. Because I allowed her to be in charge and lead these. And she has done an awesome job. The more we just stop comparing ourselves with each other, the more as a body we work together, we function together, we flow together. We're not jostling for position. We're not wanting more affirmation than the next person. We're not doing whatever we're doing so that people will applaud us and say, great job, the super, you did a super job, sweetie. And, and those of you, those of you who, have, who are involved in ministry, and Mike, you're doing an awesome job in the life group, and Sarah and others who are laboring in the kingdom, and those who are prayer warriors, thank you intercessors, and teen leaders, and I could just keep going on. Awesome job. And the reason why I believe that we are seeing people like in the, the teen ministry, it's net, the teen, there's about 10 teen leaders now. And they're beginning to flow with one another. We're just starting out. But I think the reason is because nobody's jostling for position. No one's wanting the highlight or the applause. They're not seeking to be greatest. Do you want to be great? I mean, truly the greatest? Then humble yourselves. And lastly, number five. I believe that humility helps us overcome the fear of man and the fear of failure. What does pride do? Pride lifts me up. Pride listens to what other people say, their opinion. They feed off it. Those who are pride, they feed off the opinions of others. They need that affirmation. But you know what? Someone who is truly humble, as Jesus was, the opinions of others mean so very little. So very little. Wise opinions, that's different. When people just go around and evaluate others, and you probably read bloggers. I mean, sometimes I just wish we could blow up the internet. Uh, truly, I mean, bloggers are self-proclaimed expert. And I'm uh, sorry, let me take that back. Many bloggers are self-proclaimed experts, and it is their job to make sure that all Christians keep in line. That if, and if you say one little thing off-center, or at least they think you're off-center, they'll write an entire blog, probably even a series about you. And so we just have to be careful. Now, I'm, I'm being very careful with my words right now because my wife is a blogger, but she is one of those bloggers who doesn't just try to keep a pulse on the church and say, you know what, you're doing it wrong. But that's what many of them do. That's pride. You know, so sometimes we just need to stop listening to what other people have to say. Did G was Jesus swayed in any way by the opinions of others? 
and how they personally evaluated him? Absolutely not. He knew that he was the son of God and anyone's voice contrary to that, it was like water off a duck's back. Okay, well, you know what? You're just not ready. Because guess what? Only, though, only those that the father draws are going to come to me. This is what he said in response to people who were being very critical with him. He didn't care about their opinion. You know what? It's just that you haven't humbled your heart, and so God's grace isn't being poured out on you, and you're not even seeking the truth. I'm paraphrasing right now. The Father's not drawing you. That's the real problem. The Father's not drawing you. You're proud. Jesus cared very little for the opinions of others. Jesus did not have the fear of man. If you were to go now to 1 Peter chapter 5, Let's do that right now. 1 Peter chapter 5. I'm going to try and wrap this up with this. 1 Peter 5. This is what we find. It's in the context of humility. Verse 5, it says, humble yourselves. Excuse me. Verse 5 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And in verse 6, he says this. 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves. Did you catch that? Humble yourselves. Because if you don't, God will do it for you. But humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, so that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Where is the fear of man in that? See, humility does not fear man. Humility fears God. Humility has proper perspective of who God is, and who I am. He is the master. He is God. He is Lord. And I am not. I'm not the one in charge here. He is. I do not need to fear man. I need to fear God. And therefore I humble myself under his mighty hand. I don't humble myself under others mighty hands. I don't fear man. I fear God. Now, I'm not addressing those who are in authority. Of course, we fear the king and such. That's, I'm not addressing this. The fear of man is what I am addressing. The fear of man is what causes us to be conformed to the patterns of this world and to the stinking thinking of this society. The fear of man is what can compel us to do the very opposite of what God wants us to do. But it can also, humility will also cause us to overcome the fear of failure. Can I ask you something? I want you to, and I, I, I want to test this. I want you to think of something that you used to do, and it was good, but you don't anymore, or don't do very much of anymore. Let me pick on evangelism. And this is rather personal for me. Because I have discovered that lately in the last couple of years, I have not evangelized like I used to. And I had to step back and ask the question, why? And one of the speakers at the conference said, failure can strike a chord, that selfish ambition, that pride in us. Failure can be so intense sometimes, it can make us not want to do what we fail at. 
Righteous man falls seven times but rises again. He keeps trying regardless. He says, but the fear of failure or failure itself can now cause us to fear it and step back and be very timid to move forward. Because there was a season in my life in which I was doing a lot of evangelism and I saw no fruit. And I allowed the enemy to sow a seed that made me more gun-shy to evangelize. There was this sense of weariness. And I just came to, within the last year, God has just been saying, Mike, this needs to go. This needs to go. And I've been praying more about it. You've been preaching more about it. As I've been praying more about it, just saying, God, search my heart. Whatever is there, I need you to root it out. And God has been rooting it out. And it was just this past week in which the concept, God revealed to me what it was. Uh, it, in that concept. And I realized that's why it has done that. And I need to root it out. And so I'm going to encourage you. If it's evangelism. If you've evangelized in the past. Maybe you saw no fruit. Maybe you, maybe there were people who, who so opposed you. That it struck this sense of fear of failure. Or, or shying away from it. And you're not evangelizing like you used to. I'm going to encourage you to come to the evangelism team. Get baptized in, in this, get immersed in it and, and, and change your perspective because this is the thing, church, this is the thing about evangelism. Yes, there are times in which we're not going to see any fruit. We're going to see instead opposition. Jesus discovered this. Jesus in John 6 came to this point as he was preaching, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood, which was metaphorical for this intense relationship with him. There were many who did not, who, who had a problem with this because they knew what the, he was saying is not just eat his flesh and drink his blood, but he, he was really saying, you need to be fully sold out in following me. And it says, many of his disciples turned away and followed him no more. Jesus had these in which seasons in which there was no fruit. Instead, there was just intense to the point where Jesus turned to his 12 and he said, are you going to leave me too? Peter says, who else, Lord, do I have? You have the words of life. And I'm speaking about evangelism right now and the fear of evangelism. You have the words of life. You're going to experience times in which there's no response. You're going to experience times in which there's just opposition. Are we going to give up? Are we become so discouraged? Jesus didn't. Because here's the truth. We plant and we water, but who gives the increase? Who is it that reaches into the heart and changes the heart so they receive the message? That's what happened in Lydia. God reached into Lydia's heart, changed her heart. And she received the message. God is the one who through circumstances is going to work on this person's life. And you are, the, you are one of the people that God is going to use. Words that you speak that I believe that God will use to speak to their heart. And as that seed is planted, maybe it's a year from now or five years from now or 20 years from now. But a seed has been sown and you may never see the fruit of it. Can I ask you this? In all of your serving, not just evangelism, but all kinds of using of spiritual gifts, and you may see no fruit 
Are you going to become so discouraged and fear failure that you're going to back off? God is the one who gives the increase. God is the one who changes the heart. I can't do that. I don't, I don't care if I preach the best sermon in my life. I can't change people's hearts. We're going to get into a little bit more of that in the, the anointing this evening. I can't do that. But God can. Humility. He says, you know what, God? I can. But you can. And I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I'm not a great evangelist, but I'm going to evangelize. And God can use me. If we humble ourselves, the fear of man and the fear of failure begin to pass away. Then we're going to see God in bold manner. In any spiritual gift, as we humble ourselves and God pours out his grace, he's going to use us more and the impact will be even greater. That's what I want to see in you. I think that's what you want to see in your life. So please stand with me. If you find yourself regularly comparing yourself with others, would you let God just pluck that weed out of your life tonight? You're either going to find that you're a failure or not as good, or you think you're going to be better and that's going to create issues. Let's just humble ourselves and say, God, can we do that? God, would, would you help us right now? As we humble ourselves before you. This is not about me. This life that I live. Truly is all about you Jesus. It's not about the applause that I get at the end of the day. It's not about how good people think I am. is about how I promoted your kingdom today. And that is truly all that matters. How did I live for you today, Jesus? How did I serve you as this poured out living sacrifice for you that's being constantly renewed because, yes, God, there still is garbage. God, help us to get this garbage out. Weed it out, Lord. Sometimes these weeds, they take over and it, they just suck the life out of everything that we do. And we find ourselves discouraged again. God, breathe life into us tonight as we humble ourselves before you. It is not about me. It is only about you, Jesus. You live for me. You're my life. You're my joy. Jesus, you're my hope. You're the one I live for. Capture my heart. Crucify, kill the me that wants to be promoted in people's eyes. To be a friend, 
us to love. Rescue us from ourselves, God. But Jesus, as we crucify, as we die to ourself, live through us. Jesus, as you are sitting on this throne, as we are humbling ourselves before you, as we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, God, may you lift us up. Man's praise cannot do that. But you can. In your timing, God, you lift us up. You are strength. You are source of everything. I need you, Jesus. I need you. Father, I just pray a blessing on every single one of us as we humble ourselves before you. And you open phenomenal doors of opportunity. Use us, God, in your kingdom to impact people for eternity. Because that's your heart. In Jesus' name I God bless you, church. Have an absolutely awesome, awesome week. Look forward to seeing you Wednesday. Amen. Again, Tuesday morning prayer. I don't want to forget that. Tuesday morning prayer. Uh, join us. Uh, there's so much that's going on in the church. If you can maybe get up a little bit earlier or sacrifice a little bit more on Tuesday mornings and join us, that would be awesome. Love to see you guys as we unite in prayer and see God do awesome things. Amen. God bless you.